This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, Hollywood on the Potomac, Nerd Prom, or as it's officially referred to, the White House Correspondents Association Dinner. For many, it's the polyoptic Super Bowl of comedy, and as such, we bring you its undisputed MVP, Tammy Haddad. She runs this town and joins us to share all the inside info on which stars will be there. And then we turn to Mark Katz, former Clinton speechwriter and political comedy savant, for an inside look at what it takes to prep the president for his most anticipated comedy turn of the year. All that! Plus, Mary Phillips Sandy, editorial producer for Comedy Central's Indecision. Hi-o! But first, I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Joshua, my friend, it is great to have you here. Adam, it is great to be with you on this very special polyoptics episode and week. This is the week of the White House Correspondence Association Dinner and everything that attends to it around Washington, D.C. The Tammy Haddad Brunch, the Bloomberg Party, the Vanity Fair Party, the MSNBC Party, the New Yorker Reception. Uh, it, it is a it is the one weekend across the year when Washington goes Hollywood. Absolutely. It is Hollywood on the Potomac from start to finish. And uh, we have an absolutely first-rate slew of guests to share with everybody here on Polyoptics today. But before we get there, I want to take one second just to point out uh, in a serious note what I think was a very important element, polyoptically speaking, across this week. And that was the transition, Josh, of the Romney campaign to a real presidential full-on campaign mode with that speech in New Hampshire. Well, let's let's break that down a little bit, Adam, because it was very good on a number of respects and in a number of respects that I don't think have been commented on that much, which is now Mitt Romney has had good speeches written for him and used the teleprompter, but this was a particularly far-reaching, more upbeat and optimistic speech than he has given before. Uh, It was done not in the at the place of any of the primaries that were being held this week, but sort of in his backyard, Manchester, New Hampshire, about halfway between the Lake Winnipesaukee house that he owns and the Braintree house that he owns. It was on a a stage, a circular stage, which if you look at the high shot over it, it said, Believe in America, MittRomney.com. The placard put on the podium says, A Better America Begins Tonight. Uh, which is sort of showing that they're introducing production techniques designed specifically for an event. He had a hard wall backdrop, uh, sort of an interesting step and repeat pattern, A a Better America Begins Tonight, which was on a 4x8 directly behind him, through the through the pool feed, which is sort of the the great recipe for how to do it, but with a flag-waving and placard-waving mix of people going up in risers behind him, uh, it was almost taken from the 10-part series, poly- The Story of Polyoptics, How to Put Together a Political Event. Dead on accurate. Uh, Josh King just nailed it. And and that's exactly, that's how you do that. And and they really did it. And it was a big transition to recognize. We're doing that here on Polyoptics right now, even though we're going to start talking a little bit about comedy and humor surrounding uh, Washington and the president's uh, job to be the uh 
punter and chief, uh, but but this is an important day uh, that we recognize because uh, it's game on in the general election from a polyoptics perspective. Well, Adam, it is silly season in Washington. But for a lot of others, it's very serious season. It's a time when we do the Gridiron Dinner, the Radio and TV Correspondence Dinner, and the White House Correspondence Association Dinner started in 1920. Uh, it's a time when, for all, the, for all the partisanship that we see throughout the year, it's a time when I think Democrats and Republicans almost come together leavened by this sense of humor and this social environment that you rarely see throughout the year, don't you think? I do. I agree with you, and I would say that as a, as a young journalist in Washington, D.C., going to these dinners, chief among them for me, who was always the White House Correspondents Association dinner, which is taking place today, as, uh, as, as, as luck would have it. And I think the thing that is most interesting to me is how, is it, how it has evolved. And it has evolved uh, in our culture because of C-SPAN and the ability to take the events and the humor and share it with a wider audience. But it has also evolved in Washington and throughout the nation I would submit to you because of the energies of our guest today. That's right, Adam. When I was uh, first year in the White House, 1993, I think it was the first year of Tammy Haddad's pre-correspondence dinner brunch. And we are so uh, glad to have her with us in studio. So you can imagine that while the, while the waiters and waitresses are getting ready for the brunch, Tammy is with us, but not really. You know we're taped, but Tammy, welcome to Polyoptics. It's so great to have you here. Well, you two are so kind to have me here today, and I'm so glad I'm a historical figure. It's such a shame there's no Encyclopedia Britannica, because under White House Correspondence Weekend would be my picture, right? Absolutely. Because <laughs> I had the whole town, and I got them all to turn the camera on the president and the first lady. And how about those celebrities? I'm good at corralling them, right? Let's go back to 93, Tammy. How yes. did you decide to do a brunch? I'll tell you why. Because my friend, God rest his soul, Stephen Rivers, uh, was working for uh, Michael Ovitz over at Creative Artists Agency. And he quit. And he was the Hollywood connection to lefty politicians from Jane Fonda and Cesar Chavez. And he left there and we said, well, all of our friends are going to be in Washington this weekend. Let's have a party. So we had a party and guess who showed up? How do you know that your party rocks in Washington, D.C. in 1993? You know how you know? How? Tim Russert's there. You know how else you know? Barbara Streisand's there. Okay? So that's not too bad. And indeed, Barbara Streisand came to this brunch, again, at 35 people in my backyard, and um, she had a fight with Rick Burke, who's now the editor of the New York Times, about an interview she was going to do with him. And literally in my mind's eye, I can still see her clicking on across my flagstone, Stephen, I told you, don't put me in that situation with those reporters, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, he had already quit, so he wasn't working for Barbara Streisand anymore. And that's how it all started. That's when I said, this is magical. What did Barbara find so objectionable about what Rick said? Well, she was going to do an interview with Rick the next day, which is why he asked me to introduce them about Bob Hatoy, God rest his soul. And Hatoy had told him a story about President Clinton and um, right, this was about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Talk about where are they now, right? right. So they were, he was flying across the U.S. and um, she called him on Air Force One to complain about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So Rick, being the great New York Times reporter, says to her, hey, tomorrow I'm going to ask you about this story. And she said, that's not true. That's not true. It, it Apparently part of it at least was true. So it was... Um, it was very interesting. Like I said, when you've got Barbara Streisand 
walking out of your party, you know you were rocking something that you had not planned. By the way, that was the first time, and you guys know this, and you know the great thing you guys do on this show is that you lift the veil, although you're killing Had Ad Media by doing it, but you lift the veil by telling how these things happen. And that was the first time anyone ever called me and said the following words, a secure package is on the way. And I went back and I said, Barbara Streisand's coming. A secure package is on the way. This is great. And she had the longest limo I've ever seen in my life. I think I was involved in helping Barbara get back to Dulles Airport the next day. She had stayed at the White House that weekend. Is that right? She did. And I and uh, I think Patricia Duff was also a guest that Oh, that this day. story's getting better, Adam. And, and what else happened? Well, you know, I'll keep oh, the rest on, of it. But that was, Lift the veil, Josh. But Adam Belmar, that was one of my first experiences with on a Sunday morning calling this acronym called CARPET. And I say, guys, I need a car to get Miss Streisand to the airport. And let and me I need- explain. Carpet I- is the car service that the White House staff can use. It's it's uh, driven by, uh, well, military personnel who ferry uh, dignitaries uh, within the administration around. And uh, you have to be a big deal to get a carpet car. Beautiful. And I was a big deal, but... Uh- it's, well, that's great. I but want, I mean, it, it's the point that that weekend, and you guys know because you're long um, time in the business, but that weekend is a time where, you know, Washington shines and it shines pretty hot. And what I think is interesting, especially this year, by the way, I have a big scoop for you. I don't know if you guys are how closely you're following this big breaking story. And that is that this correspondence dinner is sold out. You've got so many celebrities, so many um, political people from all across the country coming in. And I think that it starts with that white hot light, that interest in being wherever the action is. So Guess what, America? It all happens in Washington. Your greatest fears come true, especially this weekend. It's all about us. One of the things that I love about this weekend is that it, it uh, the power shift happens, if not just temporarily in network news, um, and even for print journalists, where New York has to come to Washington. And I'm hoping that you'll take a second to tell our audience uh, about your experience uh, in the world of television news, because you have been a driving force in television in a way that people will recognize as soon as you tell them your experiences at CNN and at NBC. But I want people to understand just absolutely how fantastic your career in television was before you went out on your own. You know, you just really want me to admit to how old I am. And then the people listening will say, oh, my God, how could she be alive? How could she survive Larry King? How could she survive the Today Show? How could she survive Chris Matthews and MSNBC? Well, it's been one heck of a ride, and it's really great. And what's great about it is, and what my core belief, and Josh and I have to tell us tell our callous uh Florida story is that um, I really believe in conversation. I know people like to badmouth cable, but I actually think that democracy prospers because there's so much integration of people's views. You know, when I was producing Larry King Live and we had um, guests take calls from from viewers, it was considered shocking. Oh my God, why would well, we want you, to talk to a viewer? This was not the only example of where you pioneered and you, you really carried it forward. I mean, Larry King is one of the most impressive legacies, but your time at the Today Show and of oh, course... Yeah. Hiring uh, Matt Lauer, that was no dumb move, was it? <laughs> and how much money did he get? And he's worth every nickel. Such a hard-working guy. I remember when he was doing like news in, news inserts on HBO. Do you remember that? That's Before right. That was the Today last Show? job. And you know, he tells this great story about how he was so discouraged that he was going to open 
open a tree cutting um, business and he was doing the HBO voiceovers and he was on live at five in New York. And, you know, Steve Friedman, who built the Today Show studio, I was there for all of that. He um, saw Matt Lauer and thought he was the greatest thing. And, you know, the news people at NBC were very nervous about him. You're not a news guy. You know, you're not covered with mud up to your waist every day for the last 20 years. You know, you didn't follow and chase a president all of that time. And I think he's the great um, recent indication that the traditional ways to success in television news are not necessarily there. But even before that, Tammy, and Adam and I have talked so many times about his growing up in Washington, D.C., in the house that George H.W. Bush once lived in. And I talked about growing up in Boston in an age when sort of rock and roll radio was still all the rage. I didn't do music. I veered to talk. Mm -hmm. And I veered to WEI in Boston, which then carried this guy throughout the night called Larry King. Right. And it was him keeping me company with those guests and those calls from around the country that exposed me so much to the geography and the people and the literature that was coming out. And when you connected with Larry and brought that to television, that was historic. Did you begin with like an empty Rolodex? How did you begin this run? Well, you know, I was so naive. But I was at KDK Radio in Pittsburgh, which was part of the Group W stations, Westinghouse. They had a lot of money, so we would travel to the political conventions and and cover a lot, you know, cover the presidential race. And so I had a lot of national experience. And it's funny because the Carter administration was the first White House that cared about radio. So they had radio outreach. And so we talked to them every day. Exactly. And they told me one day, oh, the Larry King radio show job was open. And it was about, I don't know, about a year into it. And I knew about Larry, but they were on a small station in Pittsburgh. They didn't have a lot of coverage anyway. And so I applied for the job and they hired me, but I didn't know really the power of radio. I mean, look, when I worked at KDK, we were, you know, we did the talk shows, right? But um, we also picked the music for about six months. They let us pick music. We used to dance with the file cabinets. That was always fun. Precursor of my marriage, much later. I'm not saying my husband's a bad dancer, but Adam's <laughs> met him. Let's, I guess we should just leave that part there, right? But um, but it, it truly was the beginning of talk. And, of course, what's changed is that you had great huge personalities like Larry King, Rush Limbaugh, and people started looking at radio differently. And of course, today we have Sirius XM where you can get exactly what you want. You can tune right in. And what a gift it is for people to hear directly from other people talking about things like this, lifting the veil. I'm going down to D.C. for the first time in in quite some time. I'll be staying at Feldman's house. Uh, where else? I'll, where else? Ground uh, Zero. I, I, That's, we I'll, won't give out that address. I'll be uh, I'll be walking around Dupont Circle, having a few cups of coffee, maybe go, maybe staying up quite late and getting a, an early bus back. But it will be a time to reconnect with a lot of old friends that I haven't seen since the 1990s, uh, and it is a great weekend. What are the lessons? When a, new, when a new Clinton administration comes into town, when a new Bush administration comes into town, when a new Obama administration comes into town, formed in this bunker mentality of everyone's against us, right. but suddenly you get to Washington, you have to say, there are people across the aisle I need to do business with. So you've been very instructive to say, you may have a lot of fun this weekend, but come Monday or Tuesday, start writing those notes, right? No, I think that's right. And I don't know. I've always been so, you know, nonpartisan. I've always dealt with all the political parties and all the people. I know a lot of people have a hard time with that. And it is a challenge because it's, you know, you want to maintain your relationships, but you have certain beliefs. But I also think that 
the thing that people don't get about the town and all and all the folks there is that they're all really serious. You can disagree, but they're really serious about their issues. Even if you totally disagree with them, disagree with the method. How easy is it to trash Congress? I hate when people trash Congress. I hate when they trash Washington and reporters. Hey, you guys don't think I'm talking about the Obama administration, do you? Oh, just kidding. Um, but um, it's so I've said this to David Axelrod. It's so easy to complain about it. Here's what's hard. Here's what we can do to fix it. Here's and this is my this weekend is my little itty bitty teeny weeny way to try to bring people together. So at our brunch on Saturday. And by the way, I waited to the show to say to you, gentlemen, I hope you'll join us for the 19th annual White House Correspondents Garden Brunch. Oh, Tammy, we would be you're so delighted. Kind. Excellent. I like to hear that. And here's what you're going to see. You're going to see David Axelrod, Susan Axelrod, who's being honored for her great work with Cure Epilepsy. You're going to see Steve and Jean Case, Republicans. You're going to see Alex Castellanos. Now, Alex Castellanos is such a fascinating guy. I mean, you could talk to that guy for hours. He knows more about the Republican Party. Now, he isn't in this election. He's on CNN. And by the way, great story. Do you know why Alex Castellanos is a pundit on CNN? Because he started co-hosting my brunch, and I turned to him and said, I... You cannot do this another year if you don't start coming on TV. So I had I was putting him on Hardball and on MSNBC. And then those CNN guys, they just scooped him right up. And it's so great to have these really experienced campaign hands as um, analysts, you know, talking about the campaigns because they've been there. They've done that. They know all of that. Anyway, so you're going to see them together. Where are you going to see two fierce warriors on different sides of the aisle? other than you two, of course, <laughs> where are you going to see these two warriors coming together to you know, advance the cause of cure epilepsy? And then I had to put a plug in for the White Ribbon Alliance for Safe Motherhood, which is a group of midwives. They train midwives around the world and save women dying in childbirth. It is uh, clear to me as I've watched it evolve that you have not only built up something that's so important from a cultural and social perspective around uh, this dinner, but you've also given a, a great deal of your time and energy to important causes, and I'm glad that you recognize that. But now we're going to turn the screws on Tammy. Uh, oh, yeah. Now from the nice part to the, here's yeah, the tough enough part. enough of that. I'm going to get up. off the chase lounge. Go ahead. All right. I have a serious question for you. Okay. I want to know, as you've seen uh, what I spoke about earlier, this uh, evolution of the White House Correspondents Association dinner from something that was somewhat insular, people appreciated the humor, it was driven as sort of an event by and for journalists, but now, uh, with the advent of so many talk shows, Stephen Colbert's among them, and uh, the ability to see all of it on television, uh, how's, how important is it to strike the right note? For President Obama, we know what's been going on in the news. We um, know, as we as we think about it through that long lens of the political election year that we have, the president. And, we, and I will preface all of this by saying I think we've made some major mistakes in the Bush administration, um, talking uh, about weapons of mass destruction in a uh, playful way, in a way that it really had no right to be discussed at the White House Correspondents Association. What do you think is the right tone to strike for the president in terms of humor as we uh, hear his remarks on Saturday? Well, I think it's kind of tough this year. I mean, you, you have to be... look. The, this is a freebie. You know, there's many been many stories about you talked about these other dinners, the gridiron, et cetera. This president has chosen not to go to most of them or he'll rotate one. He always comes to the White House Correspondents Dinner because, quite frankly, he has oh, to. Yeah. Right. He thinks he has to. No doubt. And you've got a great big comedian. And um, and and it's a this is a freebie weekend. This gives the president 
easy access for whatever, you know, humorous or not so humorous, humorous speech that he makes. This president is a great talker. He likes having a good time. He likes people. He likes reporters to a certain extent, as much as any president does, which I love you guys talking about the fact how much they don't really like reporters, do they? And of course, who would want someone following them around all the time? But I think it's he's got to be a little bit careful because you want to have fun, but you got to take it seriously because everything you do now is, you know, picked up by an independent expenditure group and it's going to be used in ads. The thing that's fascinating this year, and I'll be interested to hear you guys talking about it throughout the year, is that no one has seen this many television ads. We all know if you run negative ads, right? If you run negative ads, you know, you're going to, you're going to push your, your numbers up. Okay. So now we have these huge billion dollars of ads. So the question is, can it, how much would this much money change a campaign? You know, they actually know the numbers. You guys know that. So uh, when you, when you ask me about this, I think, well, this guy is going to try to hit it out of the park as he has in the past. And I'll tell you what I think is really interesting is for all the great comedians who've passed through and they're all really, really good, right? Most of them bomb in the room. They really bomb. Right, guys? Let's be honest. It's a they tough room. Well, you remember Imus? Speaking of people whose place on the planet is a waste of space, the White House press corps. I mean, no wonder the president doesn't want to hold any news conferences. Who needs to be assaulted by a pack of rodents whose idea of a question is to confront the president with an insulting observation designed only to impress their equally rude and arrogant colleagues. Uh, sir, Brett Hume, ABC News. Sir, everybody knows the closest you ever came to standing in a child line was a cheeseburger window at McDonald's. So tell me, and the American people, is that where you came up with buy one, get one free? Oh, in the room. I don't remember was... it being as big a bomb in the room. No, I mean, there no. was laughter. Right there, there was oh no no there was laughter okay Josh was there laughter well no there was you want to explain to the audience there why there was groans. it was awkward but there wasn't were that one. okay the best part of last year let's be honest was Donald Trump in the center of the room who was preening on the way in and my guest last year was John Huntsman and so I'm taking him through and he said um, oh can you take me over to Donald Trump I'd like to meet him this is at the pre reception so I take him over to him and Donald Trump just totally dissed him right oh he looked at me and he said. Thank you for the Christmas card. And that was it. It was all done. And he just moved along, right? So we get it. We're, we're coming through security. And the, I said to, to uh, Huntsman, who I really didn't know very well, I said, Ambassador, stay right here. I said, look at this. And Donald Trump comes through security. And I have a photo of a woman Secret Service agent between Donald Trump's leg wanding her. I'm like, <laughs> the day you announce for president, let your friend Tammy know. And I'm going to put that on on the internet. Hey, we're all the same. But it was so startling. Well, was it that Tam Cam material? That was full Tam Cam. The full—that's the personal archives. Okay, that's what that where that is. But I mean, the point is, is that you're in the room with the president. You're surrounded by all of you know every reporter who's covering you forever, and it's it's you know it's high stakes. It's giant high stakes. But I think what's changed, and you're going to really see it this year, um, when you watch C-SPAN, is that there's so many celebrities there. And by the way. We should talk about the new celebrities. Go ahead. Ask me who the new celebrities who are. Who are the new celebrities? It's so funny me. you should ask me that <laughs> because they are the tech leaders. I went to Davos this year for the World Economic Forum, and it's the first time I had ever been there that, you know, it's usually about the world leaders or it's about the bankers. And the bankers and the world leaders were sucking up to the tech leaders. So you'll see uh, Mark Pincus from Zig, it's Zenya, right? Or Zigna. Mm -hmm. 
I forget how you pronounce the company. Um, uh, Chamath from Facebook, Hossein Rahman from Jawbone. Um, you've got Dick Costello from Twitter, Jack Dorsey from Twitter. You know, you should really watch closely to these tech leaders. Eric Eric Schmidt from Google, he's hosting a party Friday night with and the Hollywood Reporter. part of it reporter. is because people like Sheryl Sandberg and Joe Lockhart are populating these companies right. and giving them a Washington sense. And why did they, they pick them, before. Josh? Why did they pick them? Because Washington knows everything. That's right. Is that right? That's absolutely because, right. Because let's be honest, no matter what your job is in Washington, it is a constant crisis. You are so right, Go- though. <laughs> right? <laughs> you absolutely. always speak the truth, and I love you. I'm so glad you came on this broadcast Oh, my with God, us, you Tammy. guys are so nice to have me. But you didn't say if you're coming to the brunch or not. Tammy, my studs and cufflinks are ready. I'll see you at the garden. Beautiful. Garden, brunch, attire. Take care. Thank you. Well, Adam, excuse me. I just have to sort of fan myself and catch my breath for that tornado that just walked through our studio. <laughs> Timmy, that is one of the greatest, and she's such a pro. We're lucky to have her as a friend. And frankly, the folks who are listening to us here on POTUS uh, who love polyoptics, you, you've just got a taste of uh, of one of the real polyopticians in Washington, D.C. But, uh, Josh, this, is, this has been a comedy offensive week. And I say that not in an offensive way, but the, the White House has been out there very actively and the president is really going to bring it to a culmination on Saturday night. That's right, Adam. In some ways, I was wondering if he hasn't left it all out in the field already. The president did a college tour across America this week. He did Late Night with Jimmy Fallon uh, and he did the, the wonderful slow jamming the news segment. The reason it's so important to keep down costs is so we keep college affordable. And the president knows his stuff, y'all. That's why they call him the POTUS, which means person on top. What is it? Jimmy, POTUS stands for President of the United States. He's the POTUS with the most What I found interesting was he, when you slow jam the news, whether Brian Williams is, is speaking and Jimmy does his bit or President Obama does, the guest can really play it straight, very straight-faced, say what he wants to say, and the comedy sort of surrounds him. No doubt. Uh, this was, and I've watched the segment, and I really enjoyed it. I think the president carried it off very well. It was a very straightforward and very real topic for him. It was about uh, student loans, um, and the president participated perfectly. And then you got this wonderful compression shot of Fallon in the foreground, the president of the United States in the middle. And then, of course, you've got this musician in the background who who really caps it off. And it was well orchestrated. And you know that it was well scripted. The president was briefed and he participated in really to the best of his ability because he's great in those situations. He just felt very free and he seemed very sincerely interested in doing this. And he knew he was being serious and being funny. Well, whoever figured out that compression shot with different focal lengths and and having Fallon and the president and the singer sort of separated probably about by about twelve feet. Yeah, God that bless makes, the toe mark. That makes all the difference in the, in the focal adjustments. But also, it was clear President Obama was reading teleprompters, so his script was perfect, and he and he he deadpanned it perfectly. And but the big trick is to go from sort of that high production quality moment to where you. You think President Obama probably is this morning in the White House theater, theater practicing what is going to be his 
performance live at the Correspondence Center. We have with us, Adam, Mark Katz, joined us last year, a guy who I worked with very closely during the Clinton years, the author of so many of President Clinton's White House Correspondence Dinner, Gridiron, Radio and TV Correspondence Dinner speeches, to give us a little sense of what the White House staff and any external help they're getting are probably doing this morning, getting President Obama ready for the speech. Welcome to Polyoptics, Mark. Hi, hi, Josh. Hey, Adam. How are you? It's great to have you back, my friend. Uh, Thank you. You were, you were such a breath of fresh air and insight last year, but I think we really have a great set of circumstances to discuss. Uh, Josh began to pull back the curtain, so you, you take it and run with it. This is really one of those days where right before the event, the president is, is gathered with people just like you and to an extent people like myself when I served in the White House working through the elements of how to carry off a production that ultimately wants to be funny and yet uh, is is choreographed appropriately and, and leaves room for laughter. So take us through it. What do you expect uh, the president's doing down there at the well, White House? Well, you know, um, suffice it to say that this is a day like none other in the White House and in Washington. I mean, I was always quietly proud that I was working on a speech. There were two speeches a year that they brought in Michael Sheehan. Uh, who was the great coach and speech coach, and 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 we work for a a run through of a speech. They do the State of the Union address, and the White House Correspondents' Dinner got the full treatment in you know the rehearsal with every trying to approximate the event as much as you can. And I thought it was quite astonishing uh, that they treated it that seriously. But they were smart too, and people are smart too because you get um, a focus on the presidency. You know, it's such a rare opportunity that a a person kind of gets to poke out from behind the persona of of the presidency, um, and and that's what kind of the voice of humor is. It's kind of the sound a human makes when they are trying to uh, say the things that otherwise never get said that the process doesn't allow for. You know, the, uh, to me, the real secret of of humor in a political context is that humor is the anti-spin. You know, spin is, and you hear spin all year round, and it's insulting. You know, spin is, I think you're just dumb enough to believe this, and then you say it, right? But humor, on a day like this where you get to say things with a, with a joke and a wink, is I think you're smart enough to understand what I'm really trying to say. And there's so much more license that, that humor gives you, just as a mode of communication, than just about any other form of communication. Um, and it's really underutilized, uh, I think, in a lot of strategic arenas. Uh, and this is the, the showcase day that you get to see its power. When you listen to the president's speech, you can keep a list of things you just heard him say that you never thought you'd hear him say or touch upon topics that never otherwise get touched upon. And if you take a, you know, you, a joke, you can deconstruct it into a sentence. What did that guy just say? What did he just concede? You know, what what obvious thing did he just say that never gets said? You can keep a list of it and keep a running check mark and, 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 and watch the list grow as the speech progresses because you will never and under any other circumstance get to hear a president kind of address things frankly. In the days and weeks leading up to these dinners, tell us about when you would be get involved in this. And I ask because... You know, when President Obama is barnstorming around the country on an official trip, but doing things that are very political in nature, at what point does he begin to focus in on Saturday night? Remember, a year ago, he gave 
what I thought was an okay speech. But what we didn't know was that across the world in Afghanistan, the Navy SEALs were getting ready to take out Osama right. bin Laden. That's right. So how can you say, stay compartmentalized in this zone of comedy when increasingly so much different, I think, Mark, than the 90s? You can't sort of hive off and say, this is my week to prep this and get this absolutely perfect. Well, you involve the president as early on in the process as you can because he, uh, someone needs to have a sense of ownership uh, of the speech. It's, you know, you don't want to send a highly intelligent person like President Obama or President Clinton uh, <coughs> off to a, or, or President Bush. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I only speak from my own experience. I've never met President Bush. Uh, but, well, I'm going to uh, vouch for his okay. intelligence because uh, yes. I, I love the man. Um, uh, you, can't, you can't send a highly intelligent person to a podium to give a speech that you, they feel like a bunch of staffers wrote. They have to feel part of the process. That's the God's honest truth, because I saw that with President Bush. I mean, if he couldn't assimilate it, appreciate it, understand why it was funny, make it his own, he didn't want any part of it. Well, the real drill is to make the president feel like he wrote the speech by right. himself in a room, you know, uh, and there was no one else had anything to do with it. You really do need that sense of ownership because if you deliver a speech with the kind of tentativeness of, and by the way, I will say this, you know, when you watch President Obama give the speech, there is an element of it like he doesn't feel fully engaged in it. I always feel like you're watching a guy who's kind of saying, here's some really funny stuff my staff put together for me. You, you don't feel like he puts himself on the line. He's inhabiting the role. Um, you know, it, there's a detached feeling I get when I watch him so give true. the speech. Um, he's having a good time. He's having a great time. But you don't feel like you're hearing his voice and you don't feel like he's putting himself on the line. And, you know, humor is such an intimate way to communicate. Um, and you really do get a sense of, of how a person's brain is wired um, and I don't get that sense from President Obama. I, I feel like he's having a fantastic time, and he loves it as much as anything, but I don't feel it's an intimate moment. Josh, I want to turn the discussion, if I can, and get your thoughts and, and, uh, and Mark's about the, the topic of humor that, that might be explored. We, we've seen a lot of it um, this week. The president's been uh, on Jimmy Fallon's show. And while the president didn't touch on in any comedic way the uh, the still unfolding scandal surrounding the Secret Service agents and, and, and their activities uh, in Cartagena, Colombia, around the Summit of the Americas. There is going to be comedy at this dinner from other sources on this topic and others. How does the president deal with this? Does he stay away from it completely? Mark, can he can he even broach it a little bit? Well, Josh, what would, you, what would you say? Well, it's, it's so tempting, Adam, because... As you and I have discussed on, I think, at least one previous episode of Polyoptics, uh, it's on everybody's mind, even if, you know, it's, it, it involved 12 people from the Secret Service and 12 people from the military. It, it must be the biggest issue in Washington right now, even though it was contained uh, in that level. And it's on everybody's mind. So if the president doesn't say anything about it, if he doesn't find a way to gently find some humor in it, will he be questioned on sun on the Sunday morning shows to say that, uh, you know, he's just too skittish about calling the Secret Service into question and making some humor about it? GSA as well. He had to fire the head of the General Services Administration and put so many people on, on leave as well. So very serious stuff in terms of how the executive branch is running itself, and the president's on the spot on Saturday night. 
Well, let me chime in as someone who once had to write a White House Correspondents' Dinner in the middle of a constitutional crisis known as impeachment. Absolutely. Okay. So how do you do it? Uh, it's tricky. You can't, you know, when there's something everyone in the room knows about and is talking about, you can't pretend you live in a parallel universe where none of this is happening. You know, the trick is how do you acknowledge it? How do you touch upon it, even if it's with a pinky? Um, and the rule we arrived at in in the middle of impeachment was we could do jokes about the smoke but not the fire. We could do jokes about the hoopla that was the uh, impeachment proceedings, but nothing about the uh, acts of indiscretion that led to impeachment hearings. So in this case, you know, the president would here. Here's the bottom line. I mean, these are people who who will put themselves uh, between him and a bullet, uh, and and he can't make jokes at their expense under any circumstances. That's exactly right, and I, I'm just glad to hear you say that. I, I believe that. I'm putting down a marker. I think the boss knows that, and he's not going to. That's right. You know, if, fra- if there's smoke, and he can find some that he thinks he can get away with, fine. But I think he well, should he, stay and away. the smoke is the the fascination, the media hoopla. You know, there's a way to get at it so he, the room can know that he knows what's going on. Um, obviously, he does. But he can at least kind of puncture that uh, in a way that is, is a sigh of relief for the room. I mean, I remember, you know, the, what was it? Newt, oh, when Newt Gingrich came back on that Air Force, that Air Force One thing. He, it, it was The it, trip to Rabin's funeral, that's right? exactly right. He came back and... He actually spoke that night. It really was such a strange time. Newt Gingrich spoke the night of the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It was just to give you a sense of how parliamentary our government became for such a short period of time when we essentially had two leaders, you know, the president and the Speaker of the House. And Newt Gingrich got up there and just, not even in a joke, it was such a, it was the lamest joke I ever heard, but he said the words, Air Force One. And the room rewarded him with, laughter and applause. So just to show you how eager the room is to kind of let the air out of that balloon, help help you to do it. Uh, but until you do it, uh, people are on pins and needles. So you yeah. actually have to do it. I, I think that's exactly right. And it's a very good point. And it's one that... Uh that I worked with Landon Parvin to try and uh, communicate to the president in his final uh, White House Correspondents Association uh, dinner speech. And he, we, we were making uh, a joke about the, uh, the red phone ringing in the middle of the night. Please excuse me if I'm a little sleepy. 3 a.m. this morning, the red phone rang. It's a damn wedding planner. Two weeks from tonight is Jenna's wedding, so I'm a little wistful this evening. Plus, this is my last White House Correspondents' Dinner as president. So we had a debate in, in our practice about whether just the saying that the red phone rang in the middle of the night was going to get an applause line. And I was positive that it would, knowing the room as well as I did, having been a journalist for so long. The boss just thought that that was silly and there was no way we were going to get one. Um, and, of course, you know, we had prepared him at least for the fact that he was going to need to be a little staccato, let that one breathe, and then pick up the second laughter. But those are elements that, uh, that point to what you're talking about, Mark. The room wants to laugh. That's right. Um, and, you know, it's funny, with, with all those speeches, you know, I could, there was, I would hear in my head, you know, what I, what I, the, the laughter I anticipated. And with every speech, there was always 
one surprise where I was like, where's the where's my big laugh? I was sure it was going to big laugh and the crowd just goes right by it. And there's another laugh that I never saw coming. So I was oh, I learned to wait for those moments like, OK, there's the laugh I never saw coming. There's the laugh I lost. So that was the only thing that I knew was uh, a given that there was something uh, that I that there was something I could not anticipate. But you can build in you know, an applause line, as you did, you know, with, with that line. And we did that for President Clinton's final uh, White House correspondence dinner. You know, he did show up for all eight years of these things. And by the way, showed up in really trying circumstances. Well, let's Certain- let, I want Josh, will you just share with us for a second the production elements of, of something that we may or may not see this weekend? Because you, you really pioneered it, was this whole idea that there was something much larger than just the the physical or the, or the vocal comedy of the president. You brought in production elements that, that were unrivaled probably well, to this day. Well, I think they have been rivaled, uh, but it did start early on in the 1993 and 1994, and I don't know if Mark was involved at that at maybe in the first speech in 93, but we realized that the Washington Hilton had sort of rudimentary uh, image magnification on all four corners. You could use some some imagery, some slides if you made them. We did some like very early Photoshop of the pre- of President Clinton on covers of Time magazine because there was this belittling thing about Time magazine calling him the incredible shrinking president. And we, we they they said maybe those the the tips of the M in Time were in fact devil's horns. So we actually put you know full deviled horns and a pitchfork in his hand, uh, and we sort of uh, allowed him to mock himself using that technology. Mark, of course, is famous with my little role in history for providing the egg timer as a prop for <laughs> President Clinton. At the end of the administration, as we've talked about before in some past episode, we made this incredible film, uh, The Final Days, I think it was called. Mark. Yeah, Lockhart gave us a great run through uh, that. Right, and, and that was you know about an eight-minute film. Adam, you've done uh, stuff like that. But it seems to me, Mark Katz, that in the Obama years, it has been purely words on the page and the president's delivery and technological enhancements to the president's performance have gone by the wayside. Good thing, bad thing. Oh, uh, you got to pick your spots. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if it's a good thing. You know, the, the, there's only one acid test at the end of, of the speech, which is, do I like this guy better for having watched this speech? So however you get there is how you get there. Um, and the wizardry is not the president, right? I mean, that is you and me and, and the production team. You know, so you, the, the thing about the wizardry, you know, we did the, the final days. The president was right in the middle of that. I mean, he was a star of a movie. He was having fun on the weekend shooting yeah. it. But with, with, with uh, the Photoshop jokes, which were the dawn of Photoshop jokes, there's actually limited... Uh, he's just showing. Here's some funny stuff my staff did, right? right. So there's a limit. You got to understand how to use the technology to make your guy look like a star and and look like the biggest person in the room. And that is really, you know, at the end of a speech, your room, the room is filled with your friends and your enemies and people who are taking your measure in every which way. But if you can make the person in the room who likes you the least, you say, "Damn, that guy's good." You know, if you can elicit that response, you have won. Well, with so much going on this weekend, with the president's travel just concluding, with, uh, as Adam mentioned, the uh, overhang of the Secret Service scandal, the GSA scandal, the uh, ascension of Mitt Romney as the presumptive nominee, uh, the pressure is definitely on President Obama. 
at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. If he's lucky, he's got someone like Mark Katz working with him in the family theater getting him ready. Mark, thanks so much for spending a few more minutes with us today on Polyoptics. So, Adam, after talking about the weekend in the White House Correspondents Association dinner as a whole with Tammy Haddad and what makes it so special to be in the district on these few days, and then drilling down closely with Mark Katz about how the president has to put together his speech for the dinner, we're now going to sort of pull the lens back and talk more about the comedy and theater of politics that has given us so much ripe material throughout 2010, 2011, and into 2012. Frankly, Adam, in a cycle where if you thought about the Republican class about a year ago and the total lack of humor evident in what they were saying, we didn't think there'd be so much material, did we? Now, the conversation has uh, been ignited uh, by comedy writers and very thoughtful producers like the one we're about to speak to because you know what? Without them, you'd want to put a gun in your mouth just looking at that uh, lackluster Republican field so far out that the issues that they wanted to discuss uh, were supplanted by this dearth of personality and yet we found a way to pull out their idiosyncrasies and some of the silly things they said and did and, and, and engage people in politics in a way, quite frankly, that I don't think we've ever really been able to do as a culture. So we have with us the pride of Waterville, Maine, uh, Mary Phillips Sandy, editorial producer of Comedy Central's Indecision, to talk about the sort of big world of, of, of political humor, the way you find humor in the images that get pushed on the wire, the way you augment them with your with your captions, and everything else that you do to give your readership and viewers uh, a, a little lighter touch during this political season. Mary, welcome to Polyoptics. Well, thank you for having me. It's very exciting to be in the company of fellow New Englanders, for one thing. Um, it's all too rare here in New York. Um, but yeah, there there is... I know we've been talking a lot about the uh, the dullness of the Republican field, especially now that we know Mitt Romney is, you know, the, the the nominee. He doesn't seem, on the face of it, very exciting. But I think, as as you well know, as both of you know, that it's not just about individual candidates anymore. Um, it's about their their advisors. It's about their spouses, their families, their, their dogs, their dogs, their donors. Uh, now, with um, the influence of money in politics greater than ever before, the billionaires behind them. So all of these characters are on the stage for us to take a look at. And of course, they're all using social media. They're all tweeting, blogging, uh, being caught by photographers with smartphones in all kinds of situations. So there's actually, I think, way more material out there for us to work from than ever before. How does your day start? What are you, what are you looking for? How do you gather information? And then how are you, who are you working with to create good content for Comedy Central's Indecision? Well, so uh, we have, uh, there's me and there's a team of freelance bloggers who write for the site and who also create fantastic content for our new iOS app that we just launched, The Election Companion, um, which is free and a lot of fun. It has exclusive stuff you won't find on the website. We also make some videos and we work with a video team at Comedy Central to do that. Um, but in terms of the day-to-day, I mean, I get up pretty early. I get up at like six and I, I go to my news feeds. I go to Twitter. I go to Tumblr. I go to Facebook. I see what people are talking about um, because it's a combination now of finding the funny stories, but also the funny stories that people are really going to want to read about and talk about. 
um, you know, sometimes a story might not be momentous in a newsworthy sense, but it might give us an angle or a hook that's really fun. Um, and so, and we also look for ways to combine funny pop culture moments with stuff that's really happening in politics. And uh, so, yeah, so then I start barraging the writers with emails around 630. <laughs> um, and how you sort of gone back and forth between some very serious long form journalism about the economic uh, plight of of your home state in Maine, like the Great Northern Paper Company and uh, Millinocket, and places that I've sort of plied in my youth, the the rivers that I yes. that I went down, and this sort of very lighthearted look at politics. How do you balance the things that are that you're passionate about between sort of where you came from and the the story of Paula Page and Angus King and what's going on there with Let's look at the the pictures of today and figure out how to make them really funny. Well, yeah, it's true. I do I do have um, a personal interest in in sort of long form uh, journalism and narrative nonfiction. That's that's uh, very much a thing that I that I'm interested in and and do and will do again when this election season has calmed down and I have more free time. I'm sure. Um, but to me, it's really all just storytelling. It's giving people stuff that they want to look at, you know. And uh, I, I see what we do with indecision as not necessarily the only place that you should be getting your information and news from because we're not doing original reporting, but we are um, contextualizing and uh, curating and entertaining in a way that helps, I think, um, especially for people who are starting to feel like there's just too much news out there. Um, This is a really fun way to find out what's really going on, but also to laugh. You know, I have a huge collection of sweater vests, and I'm known for them, really. And uh, <laughs> Have you thought about running for president? The, the sweater vest has given us so much material. Well, I, I personally, I'm offended, and I don't understand why you make such fun of the sweater vest. Well, you know, there there is such a thing as an easy target. Rick Santorum is that. Uh, and, um, you know, he... he I, I really do think of these people a lot of the times in, in terms of being characters. And, and Rick Santorum... Um, whether or not you thought he was a great candidate, you have to admit he was a great character. And um, he had these attributes that gave us stuff to work with um, over and over. And he didn't he didn't seem to have any interest in letting them go. So we got to keep playing with them. There's something I think that's uh, it's it's a bit sophomoric, but I absolutely fall for it every time. And when you take a picture that nobody's really seen because it's one of the more obscure photos and you put that great thought bubble and you give the uh, the comedic line in there, it, it it just it destroys me. It, it always does. Do you guys come up with multiple iterations of these, and you have to decide which one is best, or do these when when the writers get on this, uh, do they do they all focus on one thing at a time? Everyone is working together, or is it always a uh, Darwinian kind of you know the funniest survive? Well, you know we're we're not a traditional. I mean, we're on the internet. We're not like a, a writers' room like you might see a, you know in a, in a movie company or something. Like that, so we're you know not all in the same place. We're not all in the same time zone. Um, it's it's much more fast-paced thing. Sometimes we do have time to pitch ideas back and forth and to really work on on coming up with the best jokes possible. Other times it's really just up to the individual writers, um, and it all gets filtered through a blog editor, obviously, and often through me too, so that we we try to put out. Um, you know, not just our first thought. That's never a good idea. <laughs> my, my favorite example of this <clears throat> recently uh, is something that you shared with us, and we'll have to be sure to put it uh, up on the Polyoptics site, was uh, the so-called cookie gate, where, yes. where Romney says, Anne loves to bake cookies. She's built in ovens in each of her Cadillacs. So I can I can <laughs> explain so to you exactly how that came about. These that was, cookies aren't marvelous <laughs> enough. <laughs> that was... 
that's a really great example of how, of, of how we work at our best. There was this cookie gate thing that was happening. We knew we had to respond quickly. And I sent out an email to the team. It was like, okay, guys, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a gallery of, um, you know, what Mitt Romney could have said. Everyone send jokes. Everyone um, pitched their jokes at us, and we, we picked out the best ones. We built the gallery. Ten minutes later, it's on the website. Um, and then we had to move on to the next thing. It's just there, there is a de- definitely a pace to the Internet and to digital comedy that um, is, is rapid, but that's part of the fun of it. So we were with Mark uh, Katz earlier and recognizing that President Obama and his staff getting ready for their speech at the for the president's speech at the Correspondents Association is probably struggling with how to have a light touch and be funny about the Secret Service scandal and the GSA scandal. And yet you would probably be totally unrestrained. How have you approached this issue and and made some made some fun out of it? Well, we're not I mean, we're not totally unrestrained. We we have uh, I think we all. We all have our boundaries, and I don't just mean, you know, in terms of, like, what we can get away with or what we're allowed to do. I think there's certainly things that are inappropriate, not just because they're inappropriate, but because they're not funny. And there are there are things that we just kind of don't touch, that we don't go near. The Secret Service scandal, obviously, um, I, I think something like that is a really good example of when you have to be really clear about who the target is. The target isn't these women. The target isn't these women who got, you know, these, these anonymous women who got caught up in this, who were who were... Um, you know, sex workers of some sort, like we're not going to make the jokes about them. The joke, the, the burden is on these agents who screwed up um, their superiors. The, you know, this this sort of investigation, we're finding out all of this stuff. Like, how could this be happening right under our noses? That's where we have to direct ourselves. And I think the misfires come when you forget that and you turn it into a joke about people who really shouldn't be the target of the joke. Tell us the origin of indecision. So this is the genesis story of Comedy Central's indecision. Um, uh, it's sort of epic. I feel like there should be biblical music playing. Uh, way back in 1992, um, when we were all much younger, uh, Al Franken, who was actually a comedian then and not a politician, had this idea to cover the State of the Union address for Comedy Central, which was not something that really had been done before, this layering of real comedy with real news. And Comedy Central thought this was a great idea. Obviously, it was. Um, and managed to get access to the network feeds of the State of the Union address. And uh, Franken went on to cover the 92 conventions, both Democratic and Republican. And that was when the word indecision came into play. Um, that was sort of the moniker that was applied to what, what proceeded to be a whole bunch of really great political comedy coverage with folks like Chris Rock, Dennis Miller, Ariana Huffington back when she was a conservative. I mean, think how we've changed. Um <laughs> And so then, it, you know, much later, the indecision became a, a segment on The Daily Show that, that, that was used, to, again, as sort of this extension of the network's overall brand for political comedy. Um, but so but so indecision, the website that I work for, started in late 2007, the run up to the 2008 election as the digital home for Comedy Central's political comedy coverage, of which there is a lot that goes. I mean, there's original stuff. We also have, frankly, a lot of... Um, uh, comics and and shows that do political material. Kian Peel just got this great shout out from President Obama and Jimmy Fallon last night because of their um, Luther Anger Translator, their Obama Anger Translator bit. So Comedy Central has this really broad history of of political coverage that goes way back. And Indecision is is sort of the digital home of that. And it's really exciting. So now we we really are down to two. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. How how will you... A lot of characters have pretty much gone to the side. You don't have Herman Cain to kick around anymore. You don't have uh, Michelle Bachman. You don't have uh, John Huntsman. Uh, you basically have two sort of major sources for uh, uh, for 
uh, the presidential race? Mm -hmm. Are you going to branch out to the Senate races? What's the plan for indecision between now and November? I, I actually, you know, I think there's going to be a lot to work with. We have the Veep stakes excitement, if you can call Tim Pawlenty exciting, which you can't really, but there it is. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's going to be that. There's also going to be uh, Congress has been a great source of humor for us lately. I mean, their approval rating, it's what in in the their. 18% maybe approve of Congress right now. It's it's dismal. Um, the stalemate's there. Pretty funny. Like you said, there are some key Senate uh, races. There are going to be gubernatorial races, ballot initiatives. There's always something happening. Um, and, you know, and like I said earlier, it's really not just about Romney and Obama. It's about their families, their handlers, their advisors, the people around them who are going to be contributing to this campaign. And frankly, Rick Santorum hasn't gone away. He was just on Piers Morgan last night. He's going to be out there talking. Um, uh, Michelle Bachman's going to find a way to get her face on a camera again. Uh, she'll, maybe she'll have a Fox News show. Sarah Palin hasn't gone away. We thought she would and she didn't. So they drop out of the race, but they're never really gone. Is Rick Perry gone away? Rick Perry has gone away. Yeah, he's well. No, I guess he's gone to Texas, which is um, that's might as well be another country. Same. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, but even he, I think, you know, it. I think, I think all of these people will will jostle for attention, especially around the convention uh, in Tampa in August. Anything special planned for the convention? Well, <laughs> this is where more comedians come to break their news than any other place. Yeah, well, we are we are definitely going to be there. Uh, we're we're excited. We're going to be. I'm going to be covering it for the website uh, along with our editor Dennis DeCladio, and we're going to be shooting video with two comedians, um, Jared Logan and Jordan Carlos, who we're working with this year. They're going to be out in the street, let loose in Tampa with microphones. So I don't know what'll happen, but we're going to tape it and uh, put it on the internet. I mean, growing up in Maine, if you don't, if you didn't start out admiring Tim Sample, then you know, <sighs> where were you going to get? In, you know in Tim here? Sample, yes. Yeah. And you know talking about politics, because that's a big sport up there. I know. And, and we got Tim Sample to open for Bill Clinton in a visit to Portland, Maine in uh, early 1993. I remember that. I was in high school, but I remember I, that. Yeah. I built the stage right in front of the pond with the, with the city of Portland right behind yes, us. Yes, I know that pond. Wow, that's really funny. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming by. Thank you for having me, Josh. 